You are listening to Breaking the Waves, conversations about the Dutch pandemic. My name is Matt Cornell, and this podcast is uh, an English language uh, project that takes a critical look at Dutch coronavirus policy. Uh, today's guest is Ninka Ebenberg. Ninka is a nurse practitioner in general care in a low-income Dutch neighborhood and a member of the COVID-19 Red Team. She's been involved in the professionalization of nursing through professional associations and in legislative procedures at the national level. Previously, uh, she worked on research and in the outpatient clinics at academic hospitals and hospitals with super specialization in inflammatory bowel disease. In her work, Ninka tries to approach healthcare from the bottom up, reflecting the unique relationship between healthcare provider and patient. Our conversation was recorded on June 6th, 2021. Could you just um, tell me a little bit about what you do, uh, what you do for work, and um, how that has been impacted uh, in the events of the last uh, year and a half? Yeah, uh, I'm a nurse practitioner uh, in the Netherlands. Um, I'm doing this uh, in general care. So uh, um, I, I'm involved with a practice uh, in a low uh, social and economic um, uh, neighborhood. And um, what I'm doing is uh, normally I have, um, I have to take care of, of, of patients with all kinds of uh, healthcare problems. Um, uh, the, of course, we have the general practitioner for doing the most of it uh, and the difficult uh, patient, but I'm allowed to see them as well uh, with smaller problems and to be a nurse as well uh, at the same time. Um, that's that's uh, really, I think all over the world, I, I think we are a little bit unique in, in this kind of way of nursing. And um, well, when the pandemic uh, was last year, when it started, uh, it was a really scary time. We didn't know what to do because there was not much information available. And um, at, the, at the beginning there was, uh, they, they were looking at the hospitals on a way and we see all the images of um, uh, what happened in Italy and in Wuhan and uh, we see all that but we didn't know where to start but it all started in the neighborhood in practices in small places and um, what happened was that uh, we, we got a lot of patients with um, uh, airway problems but uh, if they weren't in Wuhan or in Italy, they were not allowed to test uh, because they didn't uh, fit in the case definition our RIVM uh, told us to hold on. So there was a really scary time. And when patient zero uh, in the Netherlands was there on television, um, we, we, re we realized already in general care that there were much, much more patients than we um, uh, could have known and that we were affected and um, without any uh, covering uh, for our, uh, our without any mask or other right. uh, personal protective equipment yes personal yeah. protective equipment we didn't have that at all yeah. um, so we were exposed already as healthcare yeah. workers uh, at uh, we call it in Dutch uh, the first line um, yeah. on our way. So we had to close our practice, um, although we, we had to close our doors and uh, we started our telephone lines um, uh, more open 
and talk with the patients uh, through telephone and only see the, the most sick patients uh, at practice or at home, but without the protection we needed. So it was really, really hard, really difficult to do. And yeah. Can I ask uh, how, many, how many people work in your practice? Um, well, we have uh, three practices uh, in, uh, in the city. Yeah, in the office that you were working in. Yeah, in the office uh, we were at the time. Uh, yeah, uh, three general practitioners and uh, three assistants and me. Okay. And yeah. for, for our listeners, a nurse practitioner, you do many things that a doctor would do uh, and then all of the things that a nurse would do, correct? Yes, yeah. correct. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, what, um, how many patients uh, would, uh, would normally be, like, does your practice cover? Uh, we have uh, um, about 10,000 patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, you, you don't see them normally. Uh, you, you don't see them all because uh, you only see them if there's any healthcare problem, of course. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, during a day, a normal day before COVID, we saw, I, I was seeing about uh, 25 patients a day. Wow. And yeah. you said you were seeing patients come in with some of the characteristic symptoms of exactly. an infection. Yeah. Did uh, did you or any of your colleagues get sick during this period? Uh, I was uh, really quickly sick. Um, also, in uh, a week later, uh, one of the assistants was uh, was was getting sick. So um, my first day of sickness was twenty uh, three of March. I uh, I remember that 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 was the time I, I was at the practice and. I was feeling uh, I wasn't feeling well for a couple of days already. I was not coughing. I had no fever, but I was really tired and um, I was shaky. My body was shaking all the time. And at that day, my um, oxygen level drops just like that. Yeah, I was shaking and my whole body was shivering. And uh, I put an oxygen 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 uh, meter on my finger, and I saw it was dropping really fast. Yeah. Um, so you were able to, uh, to take care of yourself during this period. You didn't have to seek, uh, treatment in a hospital or anything like that. No, no. Well, uh, I was, uh, at one time after I think, uh, five days, um, I was getting sicker and, uh, more, um, uh, my oxygen, oxygen level was more dropping than yeah. others. So I went to, um, uh, the emergency room uh, I, I called and if, 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 uh, if I was allowed to come and they say yeah well your your body is exhausting uh, um, you are exhausted and you're allowed to stay at the hospital uh, but I was not uh, I, I didn't need needed any oxygen um, at the moment and my uh, heartbeat was raising uh, through the roof <laughs> to say it like that it was really really high um, so I um, I decided not to stay at the hospital because it, uh, it didn't feel safe at the, mo at the moment and I was having more comfort at home yeah. and uh, yeah I had a lot of colleagues of course who could uh, take care of me uh, um, so I, I decided to stay at home and uh, it worked. You said you didn't feel safe at the hospital could you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, <laughs> um, well, um, I, I was thinking that there are, uh, are a lot of a lot of patients in the hospital at the moment, and um, I was not, I 
we, we didn't know anything about the disease at the moment, uh, what will happen if you have enough um, for equipment for everyone. Um, so uh, I didn't feel safe, not just, um, I was not worried about my health, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I was worried about my colleagues in the hospitals and um, the patients uh, otherwise. And uh, I didn't want to infect anybody else uh, because yeah, probably I did infect more people already and I was uh, consumed, consumed by guilt at the moment, at the time. How long was it before you fully recovered or have you fully recovered? I, I have fully recovered. Uh, I was at home for two weeks um, because we were not allowed to stay at home for too long as a healthcare, healthcare provider. We needed to uh, come back to work uh, if we had no, not much symptoms anymore. Um, so I stayed at home for two weeks and after it, I, uh, uh, I was um, uh, just working full time all the time. And in June, yeah, June 2020, uh, I still had some problems with my head, heart rate. It was still uh, above 100 uh, BPM and um, it was too, it was exhausting all the time. You know, it was really uncomfortable. Uh, so I decided to uh, to reach out for for some help uh, to see what the problem was. So after a couple of months later, we were three months later, and then um, they think uh, afterwards I had a pericarditis. So um, uh, the virus was um, uh, how do you say it in uh, in English? The virus was um, you know you have your heart and the heart is in an, in a sack. And on the sack, the virus was there. Um, so that's why I got a heart, a high heart rate. Okay. Um, but that, that is treatable very well. So uh, when they discovered that, I was I was being treated, and uh, in two weeks I recovered fully. Great. Yeah. So in fact, you didn't end up with a kind of long COVID. Uh... No, it could have because yeah. it's really hard to find uh, after right. so many so many months. Yeah, uh, I could have, but uh, no, thank God, no. Yeah. So at a certain point, the practice uh, after the first lockdown reopened. Uh, what was it like to go back to work? What were the working conditions like when you returned uh, to your practice? Uh, after my illness or after well, the first, first lockdown? Yeah, after the first lockdown. Yeah. When you returned back. It was uh, delusional. Um, okay. because uh, everybody was saying, uh, oh, well, it's over, we're going on holidays and something like that. But um, I, was, I am uh, working in a low social, social and an, uh, economics uh, neighborhood. And the virus was still there in the neighborhood. Uh, I could tell. And I, uh, when it was August last year, um, I noticed that there were more in fact, uh, infections uh, at the practice, practice. So I saw more people uh, and the virus was uh, on their way back. Uh, it was working there. Uh, so um, I tried to call some people and say, okay, I, I think the virus is back and we need to do something. Uh, but nobody believed it. But it was uh, like 30, 35 degrees in the Netherlands and I was there fully covered in uh, personal protection, um, sweating my ass off. And uh, everybody was uh, saying, no, it's over. Uh, so it was really, really strange. 
now you say it was delusional. Who was delusional during this period? I think um, our government was delusional. Okay. I think they underestimated the situation much, much more they, than they think. Um, and I, I don't think they ever realized what they did last year and how wrong they were and how many personal um, problems. Um, there, there was so many, many people who, are, who get hard and who... It's, it's sometimes really hard for me to talk about it. Um, I don't think they realize what they did and how many lives they um, destructed. Do you think they know now? No, they don't want to know. Let me ask you um, a little bit about, uh, you mentioned that when you returned uh, to working in the summer, you, you were totally covered uh, from head to toe in, in hot weather. Were your colleagues uh, wearing per, uh, PPE and taking the same precautions that you were? The, the most were um, at, at, at the general care because we realized that the virus is in our place is a first. It goes to the hospitals a second. Mm -hmm. But uh, there were a lot of colleagues who were thinking that prevention was not, not needed at the moment. And uh, it was not in our guidelines to, uh, to wear protection as prevention. So that was, a, that, that was a problem, yes. One of the reasons I asked this is I had my own experience uh, going to, a, I had to visit my general practitioner in September. And this was actually, I think it was the morning after the government changed its advice on masking. Um, it wasn't yet a mandate that didn't come till December, of course. Uh, and so I went to my GP and um, uh, she wasn't wearing a mask during our, uh, you know, our, our appointment. And I asked her if she would put one on and she agreed to, but she said, you know, you don't, I don't really need to do this. It's not required. That was the first thing she said. And the second thing she said was that uh, anyways, the virus doesn't spread without symptoms. Uh, uh, did you hear similar kinds of ideas uh, being voiced by your colleagues or uh, yeah yeah okay yes i i did i i, I think they didn't realize how to work with uh prevention you know and and, and not oh. knowing and work with not knowing yeah. and i think the realization should have been there at the first wave and it was not still not there at the second wave and that's how it started the second wave, of course, because we did not know, and a lot of people did not act on the not knowing, and that was the biggest lesson we had to learn. That you yeah. need to, to prevent, uh, to 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 take care of yourself, and uh, to take care of others with prevention. Yeah, how much of this also do you think is this um, idea? It may be more prevalent in, in maybe Dutch medical system than in other medical systems that uh, the way that we uh, determine if someone is sick is through complaints or through uh, symptoms. And if you have a disease that, that can spread asymptomatically, um, there was this kind of uh, assumption that, uh, you, that you couldn't be sick because 
it's also there in the testing policy. I mean, even when testing became widely available uh, during the summer, uh, officially anyways, you weren't supposed to get tested unless you had symptoms. Mm -hmm. uh, and even, I think, uh, in terms of policies around isolation, if you were in close contact with someone, well, if you didn't have symptoms, there was some ambiguity. Maybe you could still go to work or maybe you could still... Uh, did you? How do you feel about this kind of attitude about... Uh, you know, symptoms being the measure of illness. It, it, it says everything how we work in the Netherlands um, uh, because our communi communi communication was not good for uh, the civilians uh, for the, uh, and through to the healthcare workers. It was not, not good enough at all. The second thing was that our uh, guidelines are not um, developed with uh without with, with evidence and um and of not or not only but evidence and 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 just knowing um but it was also developed with the idea that there was not enough you know there was not enough protection so we uh, made guidelines uh without protection and that was the same thing with the tests the testing we had not we were afraid of ha not having enough mm -hmm. Um, yeah, the Dutch word is schaarste, but I don't know what the English word for it. Like scarcity or? Yeah, something like that. Um, so they, they were thinking, okay, we don't have enough test materials. So we make the pro protocols um, uh, like that. So we're not, no. we don't test enough because we don't have enough. And that's the, yeah, the wrong way of thinking. Uh, you no. should have protocols with um, the right way to do. And and if you don't have enough, then you have to then you need to, to take a look at it and say, okay, we don't have enough. What to do next? And uh, in the Netherlands, we we say at first, okay, we think we might not have enough, so uh, we don't do it. And that's a really problem, a big problem still, I think. Yeah, it also seemed to inform the the allocation of uh, ICU beds. Uh, uh, you know that the, we have this many. Uh, beds in intensive care, and I, I know that they added something like a hundred uh, during the second wave or something. But in general, it was like, well, we have this many beds, so we can only have this many patients, uh, which meant that, in, uh, at least as far as I understand it, a lot of people were not admitted for healthcare, uh, especially during the first wave, who were perceived to be too vulnerable, uh, too old, uh, that you had this sort of GP uh, triage where, you know, uh, people who would otherwise survive, maybe if there were more uh, resources for, to treat them. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think that this, this happens in the Netherlands. Um, um, we didn't have triage on elderly people. Uh, some people think we had, but it's not true. Um, we think uh, also without COVID that when you're on the ICU and you need uh, to be on the vent, um, and you're too old, there's no chance you can recover fully um, or without re or recover without handicaps and, you know, and, and any uh, quality or, or, of life. So we had that rule already before COVID. So that we talk to the patients and say, okay, um, you might need to go to the ICU, but is it something you want? Um, okay, but yeah, uh, you're saying that 
that's already the case. Mm -hmm. But is that really um, is that really a choice that the patient is freely allowed to make, or is there yeah. in fact pressure to choose not to seek treatment in that case? It is a choice, uh, and uh, sometimes when someone's healthcare is really really bad, really really bad, you know, there's some problem with the, with the, with the, with the heart, some problems with the lungs, you know, and, and much many other diseases. Uh, when the physicians are sure you're you are not surviving the ICU, um, that then they made the choice for the other one, but otherwise it is a choice. Yeah, and uh, and then we we take conversations with the people and 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 their family, of course, of, of why is it better not to go to the ICU or why it's um, helpful because sometimes we do think you can go to the ICU and we do think you can recover. And sometimes we have the other conversation. Sometimes people say we don't want to go and then we can talk about it and say, well, we think you might have a chance. Okay, but as I understand it, those patients uh, who were either, who, who, who would then decline a hospitalization because they were deemed too vulnerable to survive in the ICU, they were not sent home to, with oxygen. Uh, were they? Uh, at the first wave, no, because we didn't know anything uh, of, or not, not that much. I, I don't think so. Okay. Um, after the but that was in the period between first and second wave. We, we were thinking from, uh, is there a possibility to treat people at home um, if they um, are not that sick, uh, they have to go to the ICU, mm -hmm. but can we, we treat them at home because it's, it's the safest place it's a nice surrounding for for the patients as well are they comfortable to to get the treatment at home and so we discovered and uh, take some pilots and um, uh, and that, uh, we discovered it, it is possible to treat them at home with the right uh, way of care and with uh, the nurses um, uh, and, and the physicians uh, and to do it together and monitor it uh, at the hospital uh, during uh, telemonitoring we call it and e-health right um, yeah and so it, it was a, a comfortable situation for the most of the patients and uh, there was also a protocol for if it's not going well um, uh, it was a very strict protocol if it's not going well at home then they go to the hospital uh, so th there was a guarantee of admission okay let's can we talk about um, PPE you mentioned that uh, in the beginning there wasn't this uh, availability of uh, mm -hmm of appropriate PPE, did that change? Uh, and uh, how, how widespread is the use of PPE now in healthcare? Well, what the problem was, uh, was spreading of the PPE. I think the virus was spreading more easily than the PPE was spreading. We had yeah. a lot of uh, healthcare yeah. workers uh, outside of the hospitals and uh, somehow our government forgets our healthcare, healthcare workers uh, outside of the hospitals. And um, so uh, the PPE was, was there at the moment. And um, our minister, Hugo de Jonge, was saying, but still be careful, don't use it too much. Uh, so I was thinking, don't use it too much. I, I couldn't uh, order the FFP2, uh, only surgical mask, um, because it was protocol. So I was not allowed. Uh, to order by the government, the FFP2. Um, and that were the mask I needed. 
so I had to buy them by myself uh, to, to, to get them. And um, uh, that's, that's how we rolled in the second wave without the proper uh, PPE, more, more than we had before, of yeah. course, because it was surgical mask it was, it is, and still is. Yeah. Why is it still surgical masks uh, if we know FFP2 is the best? Because our, uh, our RIVM thinks uh, it's a surgical mask is enough. Okay. Just, um, just like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I, I, I have friends in, in Germany where uh, you can't get on a bus or go into a grocery store without FFP2 mask. Uh, so when I explain to them that even in a Dutch hospital, uh, FFP2 is not the standard, they're kind of surprised. Uh, um, also, it seems that you uh, in, in, in Dutch healthcare, it's allowed to wear a face shield instead of a mask. Uh, what do you think about this? I was uh, I was laughing um, my ass off when I saw that the first time. Yeah, um, it, it came uh, in the second uh, wave, I think, in September or October last year, and uh, um, the, the, because there was still no recognition of uh, aerosols, mm -hmm. uh, so they were thinking, okay, this is uh, um, a really uh, easy way to protect ourselves and um, yeah, let's wear the face shields. <laughs> um, I think uh, it, it took two months or something and then uh, the numbers were getting higher and more healthcare uh, providers were uh, getting sick and the virus was spreading really fast in the second wave. So I think uh, they, uh, there was some point that they were thinking, okay, this is not enough. We need a surgical mask on it. Um, yeah, but I think maybe it was a little bit, um, I think maybe some people wanted to get rid of it or something. I don't know what what they were thinking. Well, in fact, um, you know, in the last couple of months, uh, although many people have speculated about this, it now seems to be uh, quite clear that um, Ruta and uh, Von Dissel and uh, the rest of the administration were pursuing a policy of controlled spread to reach herd immunity through natural infection. Do you think that the miscommunication or the lack of communication or the sort of confusing messages about masks uh, was at least partially uh, designed to uh, get closer to herd immunity faster? At some point, I was thinking they try to reach the herd immunity through healthcare workers. Through um, you and your colleagues. Yeah, because we are so with so many, you know, we have uh, I, I think three hundred thousand healthcare workers, and they all have families, they have children, uh, they have husbands. Um, you know, they are a part uh, of the community in the Netherlands, and. Um, so spreading through them, uh, there, there were some points I was thinking maybe there is this, maybe this is what they want. Did you, um, did you lose some colleagues during the pandemic? Not directly, not somebody I know, but uh, we, yeah. we know there are in the numbers, there are uh, 33 nurses died, oh. but um, we know that they're not the numbers we, 
they, they probably be higher because of the first wave that didn't count. There was a lot of uh, reporting in the last year about working conditions for medical staff, uh, nurses and doctors. And I remember reading reports that there were uh, there was an increase in uh, incidents of verbal and in some cases uh, physical harassment of medical workers uh, during the pandemic. Uh, can you talk about this? Did you have any experience with this? Yeah, um, I think when you not communicate well enough with your people, with the civilians, uh, they don't understand what's going on. And um, if you're losing everything um, in your daily life, you lose your job or you lose your family of the virus or you lose, uh, you can't be there with them uh, to say goodbye or you're afraid to, uh, to lose them. When you're losing everything uh, what's around you, you don't understand what's going on. Yeah. And the first people you see, they will get um, the madness and the feelings uh, they are having. And they, they, they gave it to us like that, you know, yeah. and that's, that, that's how it started. And we have some people um, who don't believe in the virus and uh, say, from, okay, go to the hospitals and uh, record and film whatever you want to prove there is no COVID. And they make it a little bit dangerous for us as well. So there are two sides of it. You know, you can get mad, intimidate, uh, because if you don't understand the situation and you yeah. have your own feelings, or someone is telling you to intimidate others. Yeah, but it, it is noted, notable that um, in the latter case, the people who are uh, deniers or uh, anti-lockdown or they, they, they don't believe the virus is real, that they've been targeting uh, public health uh, workers and institutions. So there have been quite some reports of uh, vandalism of testing sites. I think yeah. one of the first uh, uh, protests against curfew actually targeted an ICU uh, or no, an emergency room, I think. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, there's uh, somebody uh, hunting down the, 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 the top virologist in yeah. Belgium right now. So uh, it does seem that, uh, you know, on this day to day level, you had some hostility towards uh, medical workers, but you also have uh, among the more militant uh, anti-lockdown people of targeting of public health officials. Uh, I think also in Berlin, they had um, uh, vandalism of the public health institute there uh, by some of these people. Um, so it does seem to be ideological as well. The reason, one of the reasons I asked this is that I have this somewhat nostalgic memory for uh, sometime late in March of last year where um, I was uh, jolted out of my couch because everyone in my neighborhood was clapping <laughs> uh, and we were all clapping for the healthcare workers. Um, and I remember quite some inspiring news stories about this happening in New York as well, uh, where people were, uh, the whole city was, uh, was applauding. I didn't notice this as we went into uh, the second and third wave. No. Um, what do you think changed? Do you think people got tired of 
thinking about Corona or do you think that uh, there was some kind of, uh, that there was no longer this urgency or what happened? Yeah, I asked myself that question a lot of times, what happened? Um, I think it, it, it's more than just one explanation for it. Yeah. People didn't want to know. Um, the politics were fighting with each other for the, um, uh, and they were not telling anymore what COVID is at the beginning, at the beginning, and they don't, they didn't tell anymore what this country needed. There, there was no guidance, there was no leadership, and uh, people didn't want to know anymore what ha was happening in healthcare. Um, so I think it's it's a way to protect yourself for not knowing. Uh, it was not good to make us a hero at the beginning. Let's start with that, yeah. you know, because we were a hero because other one uh, because our government was failing, you know, and that's why we were a hero. And that's not the, the way to see it. We were not heroes. They give us a, a hero cape and they say, you don't need protection. Go do your job uh, with any and uh, in, in the most crazy circumstances, you know. So that was uh, crazy at, at the beginning. And th then we said after the first wave, well, we don't, we can't do anything more than we do already. We can't give you more ICU beds. We can't see more patients. Um, our emergency rooms can't handle more patients at all. Please give us less patients. And, um, uh, but they didn't, they say, okay, the virus is gone last year. Um, so uh, go on holiday, everyone and uh, enjoy. And uh, we, were, uh, we, we were left behind and, um, uh, and we didn't get what we asked. We, say, we said, give us less patients because we don't have the beds. We don't have the people. We don't have the healthcare workers. Um, they are exhausted. They are they're having uh, PTSS. They're having depressions. They are sick. So don't do this. And uh, then they ignored us and they left us at the battlefield. That's right. what they did. And um, the civilians, you can't say that to the civilians, of course. You can't say um, um, we are making people sick. And um, we do this on purpose. We know we do this. Um, so deal with it. You can't say that. So yeah. people, nobody knows what, what was happening. And and of course the numbers were rising and then they say, okay, this is the fault of the, of the nurses because they didn't uh, give us more ICU beds. But um, when you're talking about exponential growth, we can't grow our ICU beds exp exponential. Right, you can send some patients to Germany, you can, yeah, but you, it, it, as I understand it, the, the bed shortage is also about a personnel shortage. So you have to have a trained nurse who can actually uh, work those beds. Um, I do remember that during the first wave, there were reports of uh, uh, qualified uh, foreign uh, uh, expat doctors and nurses living in the Netherlands who really wanted to help out. Uh, but there were all of these sort of uh, bureaucratic hurdles, like they didn't speak English well enough or uh, Dutch well enough. Uh, to to be em employed, which was strange because there were other countries that were having this all hands on deck approach, 
you know, like, hey, if you know how to, uh, if you know how to take someone's vitals, if you know how to intubate a patient, we, we can, you know, we can work with you. Because in practice, I think plenty of uh, Dutch medical professionals speak English, right? Um, so it does seem like uh, those resources were not uh, totally utilized. Uh, I think so. Uh, there's also a history of it. Um, I think it was in the 90s, back to the 90s, we had some uh, nurses from other countries and uh, things went, went wrong with it because of the language, because of not knowing, um, because of um, um, other kinds of, of, of difficulties uh, we're heading on our way. So it was not 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 the way it, it helped not, not enough it did not help not enough other sides we are a bureaucratic country yeah. we uh, love the rules and we love <laughs> to have them on paper yeah. and how it goes on in 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 in, in uh, at the field they don't they, they don't care of the or they don't know how to do it yeah. we have a lot of managers but they don't know how to deal with the working field so it's it's, it's uh, two sides of it, uh, you know. Something went wrong back to the nineties, and something went wrong with the bureaucracy of this this country. It's terrible. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't think they know uh, logistic how to spread them uh, through the country and how to spread anything uh, except the virus. Yeah. You mentioned that the pa patients that you care for are um, lower income, uh, and uh, your colleague on the red team. I was talking to Amrish Baju uh, mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, and he talked about how one of the problems with the with the government strategy was that they didn't uh, do more to reach out to, uh, for instance, migrant uh, communities, uh, especially people who may not uh, read Dutch uh, public health information. Can you tell me your perspective on this uh, about uh, how well informed your own patients were and uh, where they could have been better served? Yes, they still can be better served. Still can. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, our patients yeah. are. Um, I think. I think that it's already really hard to be uh, a lower statue in the, in the to have a lower statue in the Netherlands. You don't get the help you need. You don't. Um, people don't care uh, about your statue and they are saying okay i don't trust the government uh, and i don't trust the people uh, i'm working with because uh, they don't uh, care and they don't take care of me yeah. and uh, so th this was going on before covid and then covid came and nobody saw what happening was um, nobody uh, take care they say okay this is the government uh, we, we have these rules and you have to stick with the rules. And if you don't stick with the rules, it's your fault. Um, but most of the people, they did understand the rules, of course, but they, yeah. they, they couldn't follow them. Uh, when you're uh, living with your whole family uh, in a small apartment or a flat or and having, um, um, you're not allowed to stay at home with your children or you're not allowed uh, to stay, uh, uh, to take your care, your your child to a daycare or something like that, then you lose your, losing your job or something. Um, nobody took care of it. Uh, so we had some information with some organizations, and we need to you need to ask for it. Yeah. Um, but with only informations, 
information on, on paper in different languages, it's not enough. You have to say, okay, uh, which communities do we have in, in, in every neighborhood? And what do they need to stay safe for the virus? Right. And, and that's uh, something we told last summer uh, with Red Team at uh, Hugo de Jonge, and we told it to um, Secretary of Health. Um, and we told him, okay, this is a problem. And we see uh, the virus is spreading already. It was August 2020. We see this, the virus is spreading. It is spreading in this kind of neighborhoods very fast now. So you need to take care of it. And um, But they didn't see, they say, we don't see a spreading virus. And we learned enough from the first wave. So the lessons are learned. Um, they are, it, it's going very well. Um, so we went to, um, how do you say it, burgemeesters? Yeah, mayors. The, the mayors, of course. Yeah. <laughs> the mayors um, of some uh, cities, yeah. some bigger cities with uh, a lot of uh, neighborhoods of a lower stature. And uh, we asked them, for, what, what is it what you do? And there were some majors, mayors and they were saying, okay, tell me what to do. Um, uh, so we could tell uh, um, them, for, okay, this is what you need to do, uh, yeah. to take care of the communities and um, uh, reach out for some doctors with the same background, uh, reach out for the, for the uh, spiritual leaders, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. And uh, some uh, mayors, mayors were saying, okay, we have the uh, healthcare, um, uh, the GGD. Mm -hmm. um, and they can uh, solve it, but they can't get uh, can they can't get inside of the houses, and this is where the spreading is happening. And now we know, yeah, it, it, the spreading is between uh, doors uh, in the houses, but yeah, we 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 still don't know how it gets there, how the virus gets there, and how it's spreading. Yeah, yeah I um I I spoke with a, a, a data researcher in my last episode, Chris Maines. Uh, who did some research into the Hehede uh, contact tracing uh, and the way that they do contact tracing. And uh, one of the things that they found in looking at this is that um, it's common practice when they can't figure out where an infection came from to just mark it down as home. And of course, yeah. the problem with this is that um, it doesn't ask, answer the question, how did it get in the home? And of course, there's only so much you can do to protect yourself from infection by a housemate or someone that you live with. Um, and so it seems that uh, something like 65 or 75% of infections are, are, are simply have an unknown source, uh, which uh, means that we don't have a lot of good information about where the risks really lie. Of course, we know healthcare must be one of those. Uh, we have some good information that schools are actually a site of infection. Yeah, um, also. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we did a lot of, uh, uh, I did a lot of work of um, uh, the GGD at the, at the beginning of the second wave as well, yeah. because they were not reachable for the people. Uh, they, they couldn't find each other. Um, and I noticed when, because of course uh, we did uh, protect our environment, so we, we could see more patients uh, in our practice, and uh, I was able to protect, protect myself, so I, so I could see more patients. And then uh, I asked to, to come to my practice, and uh, then I talked with them. 
And um, because testing at that, that time was a problem, also for these patients, they didn't understand why to test and when to test. And so I asked, I asked them uh, through their story, why didn't, why didn't they want to test and what's behind of that? And they all have had their, uh, their own stories why they didn't want to test. And if I asked them if, you, uh, if, they're, um, if I was allowed to, to test them, Mm-hmm. At that time, yeah, they, they say, yeah, this is fine. Please test me. It's okay. Uh, so you, you really need to, uh, to gain some trust from them. And then it works. Um, but it, it didn't happen at all from other uh, uh, people or other sides. Yeah, our government had to do that and they didn't. Yeah. In fact, there was a lot of discouraging of people getting tests and, uh, mm-hmm. for quite a long time. Um, we're recording our conversation on June 6th. Yesterday, June 5th, the government um, relaxed a lot of the measures. So for instance, uh, as of yesterday, uh, bars and restaurants can now uh, invite people indoors uh, Mm -hmm. without masks. uh, And also uh, various cultural institutions like uh, uh, museums and cinemas and theaters, I think also gyms. Uh, now, um, I'm curious what you think about this. Do you think, because in the media, this is presented as a return to normal or we can do this because the cases are dropping. Uh, how do you feel about this as a, as a, as a nurse practitioner? As a human being, <laughs> okay. I, I feel um, very worried. Uh, I'm not recovered well from uh, last year. Um, so, um, not there yet to go to the restaurants and go to the yeah. pub and do everything and not yet it will come but i'm not there yet as a nurse practitioner i'm a little bit worried uh, because people think uh, again it's over but we are heading uh, to an endemic statue um, of, of covid19 and we don't know uh, what that is, how it looks like, and we don't talk about it. There's no okay. conversation, uh, dialogue about it. Um, I was telling my boyfriend today, uh, yeah, today we had, uh, we talked about it. My boyfriend is also one of the members of uh, uh, Red Team. And I was saying, I- I'm really worried uh, for September because I, th- I do think it's getting better now uh, with the vaccinations. And I think uh, this summer will be a good summer for all of us but we are still working very hard to uh to 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 cover up all the the, the care the health care we need to provide to people who didn't get the health care they needed the last year uh, so there's a lot of work to do but also how can i do my job um in september october when people are getting sick again uh with uh, the virus or some cold or flu or can I know the difference uh, if the patient have COVID-19 or not? And how do I protect myself at the time? Right. And how do I protect my patients who are sitting in the same waiting room? You know, this is also a part of, of the uh, endemic phase is, um, yeah. Well, then would how to deal with it. Wouldn't the natural solution there, if we were going to be pro, uh, use the precautionary principle, be that we should all be wearing masks uh, when we're in Healthcare spaces uh, in 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 the fall and winter. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that would be great yeah. if we uh, are uh, doing that. Uh, yeah. but, but but you can't say to people, uh, do this, do that. Um, uh, when you say at first it's over, we yeah. it's gone. We are all vaccinated now. It's high enough. Now it's gone. Uh, do what you want, and then you say, okay, we need some some some. We we still need to do uh, some stuff. Well, you would definitely need to change the messaging because uh, what, yeah. is, what is emerging as far as I understand it in the scientific community is that this year was a breakthrough in the way we understand respiratory illness. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to be thought that we mostly acquired things like the flu and the colds and stuff from a touching a surface uh, that uh, on which droplets had fallen. And then, you know, my dad always told me, don't touch your face because that's how you're going to get the flu, um, or we thought someone has to cough right next to you. And this, uh, it turns out, actually, it seems that these finer aerosols don't actually fall to the ground, but they remain suspended uh, indoors, particularly without good ventilation or where there's a lot of people. So to me, it would seem obvious that what we have to do is treat cold and flu season as a time where we wear masks, not only because of Corona, but because of all of these other illnesses. I didn't get the, I haven't been sick once in a year and a half now. And that must be because uh, some of these measures work, uh, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting what you're saying, because um, uh, I think we need to discuss with each other yeah. as well, uh, why we ever accepted so many um, diseases as normal yeah and uh, why do we accept it spreading like this and uh, give some damage to people yeah and um, because if you don't feel it you don't uh, want to take care of it that this, this is a, bit, a little bit how the Netherlands works if we don't feel it ourselves we don't give a shit yeah. Uh, excuse me. It's um, okay. So we swear on this. We swear on this program. So, <laughs> um, so uh, I think we, we need we need to talk about it. We need to yeah. talk about what is prevention and how do we do it? How do we do, how yeah. do we do prevention with each other? How do how can I take care of you and how can you take care of me and how can we stay ourselves together healthy? Yeah. Not how to make each other sick. Uh, so uh, a lot of people, I, I hear a lot of people say, well, I think we need to uh, understand that COVID is not going away. So just accept that it's not going away. Okay, that, that's okay. That's fine. You think about that. Uh, okay. Can you tell me then? Um, can you explain me how to deal with it then? Yeah. And, um, and there's no answer for it. People are saying just accept it is there and uh, go on with your lives. Don't be afraid. Don't be a sheep. <laughs> and, yeah. and they will say, and I ask them, okay, tell me how, how, yeah. how ca can we live with this virus? Let's talk about it. How can we live with the virus without um, causing any much problems? And how can I, as a healthcare worker, stay, stay safe and healthy with yeah. this virus? Um, just by only accepting it's there. We are accepting it. It's, it's there. It is endemic. And now we have to talk about it. How we're going to do this? How are we going to deal with the virus? Above all the healthcare we already need to uh, to do. Um, 
uh, extra. Um, how do we take care of all of the people in the Netherlands with everything what's going on? Tell me. And then there's, there's no answer. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned this, uh, reframing this, uh, the way people think about this, because uh, one, I, I'm from the United States, which, as you know, has a notoriously terrible healthcare system. Um, mm. But uh, one bit of culture shock I had coming here is that um, at flu season, you know, like something like 70 percent of Americans get a flu shot. They're they're free in most cases, or they're very widely available. And it's never because you might get the flu, although that certainly is a reason a lot of people might, uh, self-interest might be a reason to get the shot, especially in a country where there's no sick leave necessarily from your job. But um, here I found uh, that most people don't get, get a flu vaccination unless they fall into a risk group and that in some cases, uh, doctors might discourage uh, otherwise healthy people from getting flu shots. So this, this concept of uh, protecting other people by getting a vaccine was hard to explain to, to some people here. Mm -hmm. uh, and that made me think that it might be harder to explain the need for other kinds of vaccines if, if there's already not this sort of awareness of, of why flu shots are, are, are used in, in some countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, we need to discuss it and uh, why not? Because a couple of years uh, back, um, we were thinking, okay, the flu is there and um, we're allowed to have it all. Uh, we did not realize that when you get sick, you uh, give it to someone else as well if you go to work. Uh, we do not realize if you get sick, uh, you might get some healthcare problems with yourself as yeah. well. Um, you know, this, this is changing now. I think we are realizing, okay, vaccination might be a better way to protect the other ones and ourselves, but we still have uh, the freedom in the Netherlands. And I think that's something is really beautiful as well. We have the freedom to, uh, uh, to say no to vaccination. It's also a nice part of it. If you say, okay, I, I thought about it and uh, I thought about the risk and, um, uh, uh, and I'm willing uh, to go to this risk, uh, then I don't want a vaccination. That is also a, a part of uh, the conversation we need to have. So is it okay to say that? And um, uh, do we communicate good enough with everyone? And do they understand the risks of not taking it? Do you think that your colleagues, uh, people who work with vulnerable patients, nurses, doctors, nurse practitioners, do you think they should be able to say no to a vaccination of coronavirus? I think they should. Yeah. Okay. Do you think but but uh, there's a but as well. Okay. I okay. Think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, when uh, the vaccination was coming for COVID, I remember a story of an ICU doctor uh, who was also a pharmacist and um, he was going to his staff at the ICU every day, um, every morning, every afternoon. So every shift of the nurses he covered and he told him about the vaccinations uh, time and time and time again. And he told him why to, uh, it's better to take them, uh, what are the chances, what are the risks, he communicates every day 
until the vaccinations were, were there for the, for the ICU nurses. And they took 100% of the staff took the vaccine. And then, uh, you know, okay, this is, uh, is this a good way of protecting uh, themselves and the other one, because just talk with them, listen to him. And this is really important. We need to listen more to each other. So if someone else, uh, someone of my colleagues is not taking the vaccine, we need to talk to, to them and not give them pressure. Um, because this, this is what happens all the time. Uh, last September or October, um, the, not the government, but the whole hospital um, organ um, with all only managers at the top, you know, they make rules for hospitals or something like that, you know, and they say, we're saying, okay, uh, the vaccine is coming. And uh, we think if you're not taking the vaccine, we don't give you any information about the vaccine yet, we don't have it, but if you don't take it, you're not allowed to work anymore. That is not good. That is not okay to say it like that, provide it like that. Um, we need to talk what, with each other. What would be the problem with finding another job where they don't have direct contact with vulnerable patients though? Uh, in other words, there have been cases now, there was a case in Helderland, Helderland in, a, in a care home where the patient, the, the residents there were all fully vaccinated, but it does appear that one of the care workers was not vaccinated and they had a breakthrough infection, uh, uh, breakthrough infections in that care home and, and somebody died um, from a breakthrough infection. Why couldn't we say that that was a condition of employment for certain kinds of patient care? Because profession, prevention, Mm -hmm. uh, is more than just a vaccine. I, I don't know what the situation, what the case was uh, mm -hmm. of this, this particular home, you know, and I don't know if this uh, staff member was fully informed what uh, he or she was doing. So you can prevent yourself also with uh, the personal, personal equipment, of course, and um, stay safe at home and go uh, and uh, quarantine uh, for yourself uh, so that you can protect the other people yeah. as much as you, you. There's much more you can do than only vaccine yourself. And I think it's um, important that you still can be who you want to be without a vaccination. Of course, I want everyone get vaccinated, but this is in the Netherlands and we already said um, we are allowed to make it as a choice. And so you're, uh, as a healthcare worker, you're allowed to make a choice as well. Um, no more or less. And uh, so if you make the choice not get vaccinated, then you need to get the information how to protect the others uh, on a different way. Okay. Uh, I mean, I ask because I, you know, a whole lifetime ago, I, I used to work with uh, children, school age children. And uh, one of the requirements for that job was that I had to pass a tuberculosis test. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe I had to show that I had the uh, standard vaccinations to work with children. Yeah. And I just took this as a condition of employment. I didn't take it as a human right issue. Uh, because of course, if we were to think of human rights uh, in this in these terms, well, there are many things about our jobs that violate our fundamental freedoms, uh, you know, 
Yeah. <laughs> I, yes, I, uh, every, every time my alarm yeah. goes off in the morning, I feel like my my rights have been violated. <laughs> it's like, why do yeah. I have to be at work today? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I th I think uh, we we will get there, and and yeah. there will be a time uh, yeah. when it's probably. Um, um, the, the, you, you as a healthcare worker you need to get your vaccines because yeah. we also have the same eh? you know we also do have to do the uh, tuberculosis test and we also have to take hepatitis uh, B vaccine already it's already yeah. there I think this one we will get there as well but we need yeah. to get there in steps with providing good communication good information uh, and listen to uh, the fear of another uh for yeah of the health workers as well they also have fear they're a human being yeah uh, and they need this kind of information communication as well speaking of providing good information a couple of times now you've mentioned your work with uh, the red team could you talk a little bit about what the red team is and what your role in the red team is <laughs> um uh, i always say i'm uh, chief uh, healthcare uh, red team <laughs> Well, um, Red Team is trying to give some um, uh, more information and uh, we, have, we have the outbreak management team and they say, okay, on scientist base, this is what we uh, can give to the Netherlands and to our government uh, on scientific base. And uh, as a Red Team, we say, okay, this may, might be not enough. Uh, you need someone who keeps us sharp uh, keep yourself sharp and uh, say, okay, let's let's take a look at it from another side and make it a constructive uh, way uh, of dialogue and uh, and scientists uh, with other expertises. Um, in the outbreak management team, there is no nurse uh, at all. <laughs> uh, never been there. And uh, they say, okay, the nurses are not scientific enough uh, to get in the team. They're not um, have much uh they don't know how to deal or to handle with viruses so uh they're not allowed to stay to come in there and it's also a little bit politic as well um and th so th this is why uh they asked me to to come into the red team and say okay can you tell us everything about healthcare in uh, and I, I worked in different places uh, as well uh, as in uh, academic hospitals, normal hospitals, uh, and in general care. So I have uh, I have a lot of people uh, in my background. Uh, I know much people in healthcare. I know how it works. Uh, so they asked me if I can, can you come uh, with us because I was also trying to reach out in August last year um for uh because i saw the virus was spreading again and it was, it was at the same time uh the the four head head uh, members of red team say okay we see the exponential growth already so it was a little bit the same time and um i i get a lot of trust of healthcare workers as well um so they asked me for come in join us uh, as a nurse and give your perspective on healthcare and how, uh, so it's a, one of the expertises we need in Red Team. And that's what I'm doing. We've talked a lot about um, things that were disappointing or um, upsetting uh, in this past year and a half. Is there anything that has given you hope uh, in, in your work, either with the Red Team or uh, as, a, as a care provider that makes you think that um, we're, we're on the right track or that uh, 
that we can beat this uh, pandemic? I never lost hope. Um, but um, I think that's a, it's a difficult question. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's something you remember, like a particular uh, patient interaction or moment uh, that was positive for you. I, I have a lot of positive uh, uh, moments with my patients uh, during yeah. last year. Um, because when, when people are trusting you enough to tell their stories, it's, it's always it comes directly uh, into my heart, you know. And um, uh, last time I had a, a 85-year-old woman, um, and uh, she was there uh, at my at my practice, and she wasn't there for more than a year. Um, she would never went uh, to take care of herself, and she never went to the doctor to see because she didn't want to. Um, not not so much not infected, but she didn't want to uh, bother us. So um, she delayed her care for herself by herself, you know. And then she told me, she asked me how 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 I was doing and um, how this year was for me. And she was really interested in what's happening with me. Um, so I asked her, but what's what's happening with you? Because I didn't see you for more than a year. So what, what's happening? What's going on? And then she told me that she lost her two brothers at the same day on COVID. And, oh. and she cried as much uh, she could. And I cried with her because this is, this, is what, this is the reason why I'm in Red Team. Because everyone is counting. Every life is counting uh, on, in one way or another way. There are, this is counting. And um, this is why I'm in Red Team because I, I really want to make, to help every people in their in the, uh, in their stories. There was one other thing because I'm not familiar. Do you want to, uh, if you think it's relevant, uh, do you want to tell me a little bit about hiring bonus? What hiring bonus? Is? <laughs> okay, yeah, I can tell you a thing about it. Uh, it, it was last year. Um, People were uh, giving us applause mm -hmm. uh, because of our, our, our work. And, and then they were talking about, okay, let's give them uh, healthcare workers a, a bonus or not. And um, the government was saying, yeah, we want to give them a bonus, but no, we don't want to. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe not. Um, how much? We don't know. Um, so they ask everything from us. They ask us to uh give our whole life yeah on COVID and they say yeah do that we we give you an applause and that's enough so go to your work go to your work when you're sick go to your work without protection do everything give everything uh lose everything uh and then we give you an applause well, that was not acceptable, of course, for some people in the government, it was not acceptable as well. So they say, okay, uh, we give a motion and uh, they, they will get a bonus. And then uh, the, the people of the government say, okay, there's a motion, there, there should be a bonus, but who will get the bonus and who will not get the bonus? And um, they were fighting about it. It was crazy. It was crazy. And what happened was that uh, um, <laughs> the, 
the herring uh, company, the mm. real fish company, they gave their herring to uh, Ernst Kuipers, uh, the chef, uh, uh, ICU beds, uh, like a, yeah. And uh, was saying, okay, here are our first herrings of this year. We can't sell them, so give them to the healthcare workers. And they were spread, uh, herrings were spread uh, over the countries, but not to the healthcare workers, but to the managers. Oh, wow. So we didn't get any herring. <laughs> the bonus was not still there yet. And, um, and so uh, a colleague of mine and I were saying, okay, uh, back off with your bonus. Uh, and it's a herring bonus, you know? Uh, we only want only thing what we want is that you trust us that you say okay healthcare workers we trust you do what necessary do your job and get recognition of it um, so this is how we started with the heading bonus in the, in and we give it on a t-shirt uh, we print it on the t-shirt with uh, uh, yeah some things and um, we made an uh, how do you say it? A, a, a shop? Uh, um, like an on, uh, online store or something? Online store. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and send it to the people who want it and who, uh, uh, who uh, the, the ones who buy it. Um, there was no profit of it. So it all, uh, all goes to uh, a good uh, uh, fund uh, for healthcare workers who are get sick in, in, uh, during COVID. And do you do you like herring? No. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so that would never have been a good. Uh, you, you're happy. You're fine with the managers getting the the herring. That you would per, you would prefer the money. <laughs> I th I think it, it was uh, really nice of the of the fish company to give us the herring. You know, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's the appreciation yeah. they give uh, to us, and uh, it's not it's crazy that our managers getting bonuses and and herring, uh, uh, and we don't get anything. Yeah. So that's how the story works. <laughs> it was just uh, just for fun, uh, but uh, yep. people really liked it. Yeah. And indeed, there has been quite a lot of fishy stuff going on with the uh, <laughs> with government policy. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it smells a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nika, I want to thank you very much for speaking with me today and and sharing your uh, experiences of the past year. Yes, thank you as well for your invitation and trust as well. That concludes my conversation with Ninka Epenberg, uh, which was recorded on June 6th of 2021. Uh, I want to thank Ninka for agreeing to, uh, to talk with me today at such a great length. And I want to thank you, of course, for listening. If you would like to find out more about the Red Team, you can follow them on Twitter at, at C19 Red Team. Uh, and if you'd like to find more information about the hiring bonus, uh, you can look at that website, haringbonus.nl. Until next time, uh, you've been listening to Breaking the Waves, conversations about the Dutch pandemic.